Hello and welcome to episode 257 of Some Like It's Got. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Sheldon. Today on the podcast, we escape World War II-era Japan to a series of fantastical worlds in our review of Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm feeling very full of Japanese cinema this year. That's what I'm going to say. Forget all the stuff about watching all of Hayao Miyazaki's movies. I was really sitting down and thinking about this today because I also saw another Japanese film last week, a little film called Godzilla Minus One, which quite a picture, Scott. I feel like we're going to have to insert that in somewhere in the podcast because that film is is I feel like top of consciousness right now. I know it's still it is. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, and I am not a Godzilla head by any not a kaiju head by any you know stretch of the imagination, but I just can't. I've heard nothing but just the, the highest praise for this thing. Yeah, but when you combine that with also the fact that two films, although one technically, I guess, not going to come out this year, which is uh, Evil Does Not Exist. My understanding is that that film is not actually going to be releasing yeah. this year. Seems but that way, unfortunately. I did see that at the film festival. And I also saw a film, Wim Wenders' new film called Perfect Days, which is the which is Japan's submission for Best International Feature this year at Academy Awards. So right there alone is four films. And I feel like I'm forgetting one probably as well. But when you combine that with all the other Miyazaki films I've I've watched this year and I saw a number of um oh my gosh Ozu films this year true I saw like three or four even films of his that earlier this year I feel like I I've really I'm not gonna sit here and say I discovered Japanese cinema this year I think that's like a little bit trite but this if this is the final Japanese film I see this year it was a quite a quite a year topper for me and and watching a number of films that I feel like we're long overdue. So there you have it. Yeah, you're you're living it right and uh, dipping our toe in the the inter- waters of international cinema for sure. I think we, I feel like we do that more and more each year um, as we, you know, have have gotten over the years with this podcast and, you know, seeing that the international films often end up very high on our list, you know, multiple entries on our list, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, and that's not to mention Hirokazu Koreeda's new film, which is called Monster. Yes, which Monster. I don't know if I'm going to see it before the end of the year. It depends on if it's available near me, because I am going home to Tennessee, where it's much less likely to be showing. But hopefully, I'll catch that in the new year if I don't catch it sometime before the end of the year. Yeah, and of course, I I have talked before. I think at the podcast about Koreeda's Netflix series that he did earlier this year, The Mac and I, which is one of my favorite things I've watched in 2023. So. Um, yeah, just a great year for for Japanese media. Absolutely. Um, of course, because we are talking today about another film from our countdown series, and we we hope you have been listening to our Miyazaki countdown. It was all leading up to this episode of the podcast. It's why we chose Hayao Miyazaki as our latest director to do. All the episodes are now available for you to listen to right here in the Some Like It Scott feed. And of course, as we are in every one of our countdown series, we were joined for the Miyazaki series by our good friend, Jay Habib. Jay was just here a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, to talk about David Fincher's The Killer with us. He's back today to talk about The Boy and the Heron. Jay, how's it going? I'm doing well, Scott. Is this the the most I've appeared uh, on the podcast in, what, a month, month and a half span? Like, not counting countdown series, like actual, you know, the main Some Like It Scott episodes? I wonder. I think it probably is. I mean, again, between doing The Killer, several other of the countdown episodes coming out this month and you know then then this to sort of cap it off if you go back the last four weeks there's probably only been like one podcast release that didn't feature you on it 
Did we do a an episode at some point, or am I just like making this up? Like a a best of superhero movies in like like four years ago or something? Am I completely making this up? That sounds right. We 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 did an MCU episode after Endgame as like a sort of retrospective, and then I think maybe you and Scott did a end of year sort of the year in superhero movies. For I think at the, the end years. of 2018. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I wonder if anything came out that fall, and then I came on, or that winter, right? And then I came on. But other than that, you know, I can't can't think of a time I've been on this much. Uh, and happy to be here, of course. By the way, I'd love to hear you guys do that uh, superhero movies podcast this year. I think oh that would God. be really <laughs> different. But um, I can't just, I just of course, can't I just go watch Godzilla minus one instead. <laughs> I mean, look, it seems like it's on the docket for some like it, Scott, but. Before we get to Godzilla. Oh, sorry. Do you want to talk about superheroes? I'm fine talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse for another hour. So I've got no problem with that. Because, Scott, you keep forgetting that film. That's the second week in a row you've forgotten about that film. And I think you put a little respect on that movie. I haven't forgotten that film. It's in my top ten films of the year currently. Spoiler alert. But um, I would say, on the whole, the year in superhero films um, has probably not, not been one for the books. But, you know. Yeah. If uh, we can cordon off the conversation to Spider-Verse and... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we could probably get away with it. I don't know. We'll see. I'd have to go watch a few more movies movies. first. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm not going to be doing that, but you guys, you know. I mean, did we get, did we get more than two good superhero movies last year? I'm trying to think if it's really that much worse this year. If it just feels Um, worse because of, because of all the Marvel. Well, I know you guys really, you guys liked Wakanda forever, right? So that was one. And then worse than both of those two movies, though, I would say. Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah the Batman uh, came out last year. The, right? Batman. the Batman was great, yeah. But uh, yeah, the, but the, does the Top Gun Maverick count? Maverick was a, Maverick was a hero. What well, was not super though, unfortunately. I don't I mean, know, man. If, if he, we... he survived that, like you know that that opening test flight sequence when he went Mach ten point three, and that's true. If we're doing that, then we have to count Ethan Hunt also as a superhero this year, and John Wick too, probably. So maybe uh, actually, look, I'm happy to do really that. That's, that's maybe great. it was a really good year for superhero movies. Now that we wrap those things in there, yeah. but that's enough superhero well, talk. Cra- crazy episode we had today, guys. Good. This was good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed our superhero retrospective. Uh, yeah. We just really stumbled right into that. No. As mentioned, our film today is The Boy and the Heron, the twelfth film from the king of anime, Hayao Miyazaki. The Boy and the Heron opens in 1943 Japan, where 12-year-old Mahito Maki, voiced by Luca Padavan, loses his mother Hisako in a hospital fire. Soon after Hisako's death, Mahito's father, voiced by Christian Bale, remarries Hisako's sister Natsuko, voiced by Gemma Chan, and along with Mahito, moves in with Natsuko at her country estate. Mahito is stricken with grief by his mother's death, and this feeling is only compounded by the mysterious Gray Heron, voiced by Robert Pattinson, who keeps appearing at Mahito's window and telling him that his mother is in fact still alive, coaxing Mahito towards the large abandoned tower on Natsuko's property. When Natsuko herself, who happens to be pregnant, disappears, Mahito finds that he has no choice but to enter the tower, despite warnings he has received from Natsuko and the elderly ladies who also live in the house. But upon exploring the tower, Mahito soon soon finds himself whisked away into an alternate world of magic, where the lines of time and space begin to blur, and several familiar faces from Mahito's life seem to live. Determined to rescue Natsuko and return with her to the real world, Mahito is soon thrust into an epic journey that will end with a single choice, a choice that could change the fabric of Mahito's life forever. Jay, we'll start with you. 
After supposedly signing off with 2013's The Wind Rises, Miyazaki has returned with another film being billed as his farewell. Does The Boy and the Heron resonate as deeply as Miyazaki's previous film and cement Miyazaki once and for all as one of the greatest filmmakers in history? Or did Miyazaki's return to the big screen make you wish that the great master had quit while he was ahead? I mean, surely his status as one of the all-time greats was cemented before this was released. And I think this only reinforced that. Uh, I mean, the, the king just does not miss, right? He, I, I don't think anyone should be surprised to hear me say this if you've been listening to the Countdown series. Um, you know, I've really come to enjoy all and really love, you know, the movies that I've gotten the chance to watch. Again, thank you to, thank you to both of you for, you know, roping me into this countdown. And, you know, the latest installment does not disappoint. I, I'll even go as far as to say, I hope he makes another one, right? Like, I don't wish he had signed off with The Wind Rises. I don't want him to sign off now. Like, keep keep. It's creating. supposedly in the works, so you may get what you're asking for, yeah. He, he can, stock, he can uh, stack the blocks any which way he pleases. Like, it'll, it'll work for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this, this one felt very different to me for a few reasons. I mean when I came out of it, the friends that I went to see it with, you know, were describing it as the most quote unquote acid trippy of the ones that they had seen that might've had something to do with uh, the fact that we, you know, we saw this at AMC Lincoln square on that giant IMAX, but you know, some elements, you know, like being in other dimensions, falling through the floor, even the way some of the art was drawn, um, you know, felt unfamiliar. I think about little details like, you know, the way the grass is drawn when they're in like that, you know, the, the sea world, I think, is uh, one way that Mahito describes it. Um, I think about the opening sequence, you know, when uh, the hospital is on fire and Mahito is running through the town. And again, I feel like we ha- we're, we're seeing, you know, art styles that like, we, haven't, we haven't really seen anything drawn this way. So, we, you know, we're still getting new things, uh, you know, as we're, I, I can't even, I've lost track of how many years into Miyazaki's films where I'm sure we can figure it out quickly. But yeah, I mean, there there was still something, you know, there were still very, there were some new elements to it, even though there were still some recurring themes, right? Uh, loss of a parent, you know, going on this young, uh, going on this adventure, choosing one life over another, like, you know, balance. I, I think these are all themes that we've seen before and that came up again, but it still felt different enough from the projects we've seen previously. I'm sure we'll also get into the voice performances in a bit, but they're, you know, couple people are really cooking in this one and uh, I think will really stand out uh, as the years go by. And I think about Miyazaki's filmography and some of the performances that I've enjoyed most. So, you know, not, nothing but good things to say. Like this was a, a really good watch. And I, I, again, you know, at the very end, if you, if you haven't seen this, you have to stay through the end credits. The song at the end absolutely slaps. Um, and at the very end of it, you know, when I saw it written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, you know, I just said to myself, I really hope this isn't the last time I see that, you know, going forward. Scott, of course, you saw this uh, back at the New York Film Festival a couple of months ago, and I think you've rewatched it a couple of times since. Your thoughts uh, after these uh, repeat viewings? Absolutely. Yeah, I did see the film over two months ago now at the New York Film Festival, and I did watch it twice more since then in the last couple of weeks. And I love this movie. I think that I well, luckily, I don't know how. I don't know. Uh, un, 
like completely knowledge free you all went into this movie but i i really do consider myself very fortunate that i saw this i was i mean essentially in the second crowd probably outside of japan who saw this movie after the toronto film festival in here and managed to avoid every image outside of like the original sort of poster image that's just the hand-drawn heron face on it and had no idea what was i was getting into going in going into it and i think that was a huge benefit but also at the end of the film it made me sort of feel at a loss for exactly how to expound on the experience it was so different not because it was trippy although i think that's an interesting uh description of this film i'd almost call it surrealist at times maybe uh tonally a lot more melancholic than a lot of his films typically are and i think that made for a different viewing experience where even in the more emotionally moving parts of his films i think there's often such a uplifting encouraging message at their core and i think that ultimately the boy in the heron has that as well but i'm not sure that it's delivered in a way that frankly miyazaki fans will be super familiar with i think that it's quite different when i saw this film originally it took me a good while to fully process it and understand how i felt about it and i was really curious what other people were going to think i was curious what jay was going to think i'm curious to hear what you think scott because i i think that this could really that has the potential to turn some people off of it it's it's paced i don't want to say badly but it's paced strangely in that the first half of the film is very different from the second half of the film and i was i think it was david sims on letterboxd who really talked about his experience watching the film for the first time was one where he really felt like miyazaki was wandering around for a good stretch of of the runtime only to really click pieces into place at the end of the movie and how he should have never doubted Miyazaki to begin with. And I think that there's that, that sort of description of the film really resonates with me. Not that I necessarily felt the same way as that, but I can totally see how people might be feeling that way, how some people might not even feel like the pieces click into place, but the trajectory of the film and the things that have really resonated with me on the rewatches, especially are, really moving. I think there's some like outstanding questions about the film that may or may not make a ton of sense to me ultimately. But I I just found the second half and especially the third act of this movie so powerful and so moving in a way that feels totally in conversation with The Wind Rises and, you know, maybe the film of Miyazaki's that I appreciate even above all others that it's sort of inescapable as, as this piece. Jay talked about earlier how he hopes that it's not the last film that Miyazaki makes. I certainly hope that as well. But I'm going to, just like I wondered going into this movie, I'm going to wonder how, not that he necessarily tops this going into his next film, but clearly this film has so much on its mind that feels like almost a direct follow-up to the things he was talking about, The Wind Rises, for me and how I've read this movie, that is he able to get away from the from these thoughts and these ideas in a new movie? Would it feel satisfying if he did step away from those thoughts and ideas and made something completely different? Like it's really hard for me to answer these questions because although I originally watched this movie having not just just very recently watched The Wind Rises, 
my second viewing of the film was a couple days after I rewatched The Wind Rises, and I couldn't help but just be thinking about that movie the entire time watching it and how all these different little parts of it felt like they were really in conversation with a lot of the things he was saying uh, and sort of his, the thesis maybe even of The Wind Rises. And not that it's sort of in contradiction, but it's sort of like a, a response to those things too. And I found that to be some of the most interesting elements that I haven't stopped thinking about the movie. And as I know and have experienced over and over again during the trajectory of our countdown, I'm so curious what's going to resonate with me a year or two from now when I rewatch this movie inevitably, because I think there's so much there that I haven't really, my mind has not yet turned to to scratch the surface on yet. I think that there's fascinating performances <laughs> in this movie. Uh, we'll talk, I'm sure, about Robert Pattinson and uh, Florence Pugh doing her best uh, old Florence, young Florence <laughs> trip. Uh, playing both the older and younger versions of Kiriko. And I just think that it's um, it's really interesting. I've I read several articles this past week about the making of the dub specifically. Uh, the G Kids did a pretty expansive interview with IndieWire and David Ehrlich over there and really fascinated listening to that process of what that was like and shedding a lot of insight into how much uh, collaboration was happening between both Studio Ghibli, but also G Kids, and how much freedom they were given, and how many restrictions they were put under. I thought it was super fascinating, and, and provided a lot of color on the voice cast of the dub. I actually feel like I, there's stuff to talk about with the dub because I feel like it's it, it's such a part of the production of this time. I'm not saying that it wasn't before, but I don't didn't really feel like I had I've ever really had that knowledge or understanding of what that was like back in in all the other movies that we're talking about. But now it feels very relevant to how the film was made. I think that there's a lot of really interesting and strong choices. I think that the film absolutely wraps up extremely well and, and tells a story that is life affirming at the end of the day, just sort of like The Wind Rises is, but does it in a way that's completely different than The Wind Rises and maybe makes it stand alone and all the more powerful because of that. So a really outstanding film and yeah, look, if he can keep making movies as long as Ridley Scott's making movies, let's keep him coming. As long as Clint Eastwood is making movies. Yeah. Sure. Even uh, more. We got yeah. more news on his film uh, this week. 93 years old. Yeah. Uh, Juror number two, baby. Yeah. Uh, knowing him, we got the news on the casting uh, completed, I think, just about. So the film will probably be out in about uh, two months from now. Because uh, No, it's actually what we're recording on next week, actually. Yeah. Okay. Right. I forgot, of course. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I, I agree with a lot of your thoughts, Scott, um, you know, especially the audience experience. I, I was curious um, about what people thought in my theater because um, I saw it with a, a decent number of people and just based on like the sounds and stuff that people made when the end credits hit, um, I kind of got the feeling that most people were maybe not necessarily feeling it or were very confused or, yeah, you know, just kind of needed to sit with, with what they just saw. And I mean, I'm one of those people, but the confusion, what confusion there was, wasn't a negative for me because, um, you know, I I just have so much faith in Miyazaki that it's all there and everything. And now I'm sitting and thinking with it, even in the few hours since I've seen it, because I saw it today uh, when we're recording this, um, it's already grown in my estimation. 
Um, and yeah, it is in conversation a lot with the wind rises. I, I agree. And, you know, we talked a little bit, we touched on the, with the wind rises a little bit, Miyazaki's relationship with his family and the, you know, how distant he was, it seems from what we know, um, from them during, you know, a lot of the, the childhood of his son and, and, um, you know, that time because he was just so invested in his work and you see some of that in the wind rises. And I think, you know, he's definitely reflecting now on the legacy that he leaves behind. And, you know, I, I think he's filled with a lot of regret about how he treated his family, perhaps. And that's one thing that I think is is written all over this film. And even more so than The Wind Rises, you know, he has death on his mind, right? Like the the idea of his life coming to an end sooner rather than later um, is something that kind of haunts, I think, a lot of the frames of this movie. And, um, you know, especially when we get towards the end, I think it's it's a lot of him sort of working out, you know, number one, just processing that he's coming to the end of his life. And number two, what does he want to leave behind for the people that he leaves behind? Um, and it's fascinating to watch because, um, you know, it, it's not often that you see a great master like this make something that, you know, is so intimate, is so personal, is so introspective at the end of their life. And um, I can't help but think a little bit about, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, kind of, which we talked about, and Martin Scorsese sort of inserting himself into um, things at the end of, uh, of the movie and um, reflecting on his role as the storyteller. And uh, certainly I think it's a different context, obviously what Miyazaki is doing here, but we see something similar and, you know, again, aging directors, aging masters, considering their own role in, you know, the, the lives of, of others as they come towards the end of their own lives. So a fascinating film. I was absolutely captivated, honestly, from the begin beginning to end pacing maybe a, a bit odd. I, I did think there were a couple of awkward sort of edits at times, like scenes that transitions between scenes that I was like, it took me a second to adjust, like that we had changed scenes. Um, we can talk about that, but it is, it is jarring a little bit uh, from time to time. And the movie just sort of keeps introducing new worlds and new characters and Again, space and time are kind of being blurred and you're questioning, you know, what version is this of the person that we know that we're seeing here? Um, and it is, it can be disorienting and surreal, like you're saying. Um, and so in that way, I think, and also thematically, I think it, it makes for possibly Miyazaki's most difficult film to unpack, if you will. Um, you know, I think it, it might earn that title and um it's not one that certainly i have all figured out after a single watch or that most people will probably and i'm envious of scott having had three watches you know and, and coming into to this podcast but um it does feel like something that is only going to grow as time goes on as i rewatch it as i think about it and and i do want to think about it and I, and i think again that's just the ultimate um you know tribute to miyazaki that you know, we, we Jay and I both had like Kiki's Delivery Service as our favorite f film of, of the series, which is like just the most lightest 
just the lightest, most delightful, like sort of um, adventure about this young girl that, you know, you, you'll just about ever see just a really sweet, lovely movie. And then you have something like this, which is just intense. It's a head scratcher. Like it, it's something that you want to stew on for, for weeks afterwards. Um, he can do it all. And I think the boy in the heron only further proves this and um, further cements his legacy. Although I do agree with Jay that he didn't really need to do that anymore, but it's just nice to see that he's still cooking. You know, you think about like, Quentin Tarantino, right, having this thing of like, oh, I'm only going to make 10 films because he's so, you know, allegedly afraid of like, you know, going out on a bad note or something or, or making films when he's beyond his prime or whatever. Well, I think, again, movies like this, movies like Killers of the Flower Moon show that um, the greatest directors still have something to offer, um, you know, as they get into their even into their upper decades of their life. And so um, I, I can't help but be grateful for everything that Miyazaki has given us and maybe everything that he still has to give. Um, Artists are only created for 10 years. Yes. Um, Which know, is so, how something... long it took to make this movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> true. True. Um, guys, let's move into a little bit more of the specifics of the film though. Having talked about our general impressions, you know, we kind of don't always talk about the cast for these movies, but I do think it is worth talking about here. There's so many notable names in the dub for this movie. Um, we've talked about a lot of them. Um, of course, you know, you have sort of an unknown figure in Luca Padavan, who's voicing our main character, Mahito, here. But the supporting cast is littered with people like Gemma Chan, like Christian Bale, like Florence Pugh, like Willem Dafoe, um, like Mark Hamill. Um, and, of course... Also, Robert Pattinson as the titular Heron. Um, talk in general about the voice cast, guys. You know, what did you think about the idea of these actors being in the film? I mean, you know, I think sometimes with animated films, when you have such a star-studded cast, the question comes down to, is it distracting? Like, are you sitting here and you're hearing Robert Pattinson or are you hearing, you know, the character? And I'm almost laughing as I say that because... Robert Pattinson is completely unrecognizable with the voice that he's doing in this movie, both voices, because there's really sort of a couple of iterations of the voice that he's doing in this movie for the Heron. But in general, what did you guys think of the performance of Scott? Yeah, I mean, Robert Pattinson is an, I, I, in the second viewing of this film, which is the first time I watched the dub. There was a, a couple of people, I think, behind me who stood up at the end of the movie and they were sort of getting ready to leave and the credits come through and you have the voice actors in the English dub and Robert Pattinson's name. And they're like, Robert Pattinson was in this. And I think that is the appropriate response for Robert Pattinson in this movie. You there's just I don't believe a single human being who tells me they can hear Robert Pattinson's voice in this character performance. The, in the article that I was reading, he was he was I mean, he was considered for the role because Studio Ghibli was very insistent that someone very famous and not known for doing these types of, of roles uh, be cast because in the Japanese version of the film, Masaki Suda, who is a pretty famous, I believe, J-pop star, was the person who was cast to play the heron. And so he gave this sort of unrecognizable performance for people who are familiar with his work in the Japanese language version. And so Robert Pattinson wasn't really exactly where studio ghibli 
or I should say uh, G kids was like, I think originally orienting themselves toward, but he made a very compelling case and he came to the first, I guess, like, I don't know if it's like a reading, like table read session, if that's or whatever equivalent that would be voice test of some sort for the dub. And he already had the voice he wanted to do, which if you really think sit back and think about what the kind of work that Robert Pattinson's been doing over the last decade, a, it makes sense that he'd want to work with someone like on a Miyazaki movie. That makes sense. But B, the fact that this guy is going to show up and not like not really care that he's going to basically be anonymous in this movie. I mean, he is someone who has fully embraced not being, you know, sort of disappearing into roles that are either A, thankless or B, uh, unknown because they're just interesting projects he wanted to work on. And that's pretty much how he lived his life for over a decade after the Twilight series ended. And even in the Batman, like he's virtually like he's barely ever out of the mask in that movie. There's only a handful of scenes where you even see him without the mask on. And so it, it kind of makes sense that he's interested in this project and willing to do that kind of work. And I mean, it sounds like they didn't even have to coach him at all for the voice. And he just sort of came into the into the production with that. And I thought he was I mean, I think that the having seen both versions, uh, he does a very good job matching the tone of the heron from the other version uh, from the Japanese language version of the film. So in that respect, I think he makes it his own, but captures the essence of what clearly what Miyazaki and studio Ghibli were looking for in the gray heron role. I think other aspects of the casting, you know, it, it's impossible to not feel like the casting of people like Christian Bale, Mark Hamill, Willem Dafoe are not extremely important and intentional. Uh, my understanding is that those roles were also cast with people who have been in Miyazaki films uh, in in Japan as well for the Japanese language version. So it very much is sort of like there are so many shots in the film that evoke images from his other movies. I mean, there's several shots that evoke Spirited Away, several shots that evoke Princess Mononoke. Um, they're, they're just sort of literal all over the place with these callbacks to his other films. There's also these callbacks in the voice cast as well. So, you know, you have Mark Hamill from Castle in the Sky. You have Christian Bale from Howl's Moving Castle doing a completely different voice. It must be noted. Yeah, maybe Willem Dafoe actually, had, now that I've said that, it maybe hasn't been in a different Miyazaki movie. But I think the point is that there's several key roles here that were important to be cast uh, with people who have who are familiar to the audiences for these movies. I think that was important to the performances. And I think they capture that really well. I think one of the other people that I did want to talk about just as we talk about the cast, though, is Luke, sort of two newcomers, Luca Padovan, who I think does a fantastic job as Mahito. May, and maybe we're going to pivot into this when we just talk about him as a character. Uh, but before we do, I also thought Karen Fukuhara, who plays Lady Himi, it does a spectacular job. I mean, she's one of my favorite performances in the dub for, for me. But going back to Luca Padovan, I think that he just does such a wonderful job and I think maybe, frankly, one of the hardest roles ever in a Miyazaki movie. I think the character of Mahito is like easily maybe the most inscrutable or difficult to immediately connect with of like any of Miyazaki's main characters. I think that the sort of rage and dissatisfaction and unhappiness that this character feels for such a large portion of this movie is something is like one of the things that I think made me initially not bump off of the film because I don't think that I necessarily did that, but it, it made it more difficult for me to orient myself in the story because he's so unlike other protagonists that we've had in Miyazaki movies. And I think 
one of you, I think it was you, Scott, who was talking earlier about how he Miyazaki just sort of continues to prove that he can do it all. I think the fact that he has a protagonist like this is sort of what adds to the canon of Miyazaki for me in this film. And the fact that he has this, I don't want to call him unlikable, but he's someone who is is difficult to connect with because he's more or less being pretty antisocial through the first half to two thirds of this movie. And this film even more so, I mean, obviously the wind rises is a biopic. That's sort of like Miyazaki as like a stand in for the biopic in a way. And it's fusing like a lot of different things, but this film, if we just start talking about the connections to the wind rises, this film feels much more literally semi-autobiographical in nature. This character of Mahito is pretty much, I can only imagine how Miyazaki thinks of his childhood. His father was an air parts manufacturer. His mother was sick when he was young. I don't believe she died until until many years later, but she was yeah. very sick when he was young. And yeah, exactly. And he, I'm sure it, it felt a lot of dissatisfaction with his lot in life. I mean, granted, I, he was born in like during the war, so he's not Mahito's age in the war. But I think that those experiences that he was having as a child, as a as a sort of young adult must really be captured here in the way that he is sort of presenting Mahito. And I think that Luca Padavan does such a good job keeping that distance from you, the, the audience, because you almost have to give a performance that doesn't make you, doesn't really endear you to the crowd. Because I think if it starts to endear you and you feel close to this character, the film's not as effective anymore. I think you have to grow to understand this character and where he's at. And you can feel a lot of sympathy for the position he's in. Maybe even you feel some empathy, but the level, like I, you can't feel as close as you, to cite Kiki's delivery service sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, maybe in terms of tonal vibes. And it's like, you can't feel as close to this character starting out as you do to someone like Kiki going to a new city. You can't feel as, sort of admiring of a, of the character as someone like Chihiro. You just you can't feel these things for the movie to work. And I think that Mahito is a character and Luca's Luca Padovan's performance in that role is critical to setting up the second half of the movie where he starts to really go on this journey. I mean there's such emotional pivots in this film in the final 5 to 10 minutes of the movie that I just think completely don't work if you are rooting for this character in the same way as you might other Miyazaki protagonists, I think the whole time we want, we are rooting for this character, but I feel like we're rooting with for him and having a connection with him in a different way than we have connections with and root for other Miyazaki characters. Like the way, even though we're like probably roughly the same age, like there's no way that any of us would feel the same about this character as we do Chihiro from spirited away. Like it's just completely different experiences interacting with them. And that's not to say one is better or worse than the other, but they both serve their stories extremely well. And I think that Mahito is is really wonderful in that respect. And again, it to sh put to put to put that on the shoulders of someone who, I mean, I don't think Luca Padavans. I think he was a discoverer. I don't think he's been in anything before. So it's pretty remarkable. Jay, do you share Scott's effusive praise for the voice cast here? I do, Scott. I don't think I could have said it better myself, but I think that he's right that Luca Padavan really does give. I mean, it, it's a fantastic performance because. I think I thought of it slightly differently in that I don't, I think it, it would have been very easy for this character 
to come across too annoying or like almost like, you know, what, like even harder to relate to than how Scott's describing. And it's the kind of thing that's like, I'm sitting there, I'm watching this and, you know, from, from a very distant view, I can say, yes, I can understand how you, a child is having a very hard time, but the fact that your dad has now moved on with, you know, your, uh, your dad has moved on with his, with your dead mom's sister. And now there's another kid on the way. Um, you know, it, it seemed like Mahito wasn't even really around for all this, right? Because he's only, he's only meeting, um, you know, his new mom, uh, you know, after she already has a wedding band on her finger, she's already pregnant. Like, you know, clearly like a lot of this has happened and he's probably just been in his own hurt space. So, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that's like, it, it would have been, while, while I'm sitting here being very empathetic to what's going on, I also think it would be very easy for, to do this voice is just really annoying. And then I'm not rooting for you at all until maybe later on when we see you go through this growth and things get a little bit better. But I think Scott's right that we are, at least I am kind of rooting for this character throughout the movie, but just in a different way as it progresses. And I think, you know, if, if the voice performance had been done a little bit more annoyingly, like that would not have been the case. So like absolute props to Luca Padavan. Um, I, again, I don't think the three of us combined to heap enough praise on Robert Pattinson. Like, like we've said, completely unrecognizable. Uh, you know, it, it it almost makes me chuckle because his, you know, just to just to think of another like iconic voice that you know he's he's done or like a character he's played, right? The Batman. You know, where he doesn't actually do that much of a voice. He kind of just lowers the register a little bit and is like half whispering. You know. With a, with a character, you know, who obviously has an iconic iteration with a very known, gravelly, like, over-the-top voice. You know, now he comes in and, again, I I love that he's totally good with this anonymity thing. Like Scott said, I, you know, noticed that he didn't spend much time with the mask off and the Batman. And in this case, you know, we don't, yeah, like, you, you never know. Um, I think there were people in my theater tonight also who were like, that was Robert Pattinson. Like, I think I heard a murmur or two of that as well as the credits were rolling. So, you know super super fun performance to get to witness i'll also just shout out uh willem dafoe who is in the movie for what 90 seconds if if that um a real coming came in for the to the recording booth for an hour and then left and uh, you know like he probably you know could have done it like 20 different ways because he's so talented um and it again just did such a good job it's like you know em- like empathizing the pelicans to me right like and you know making me like have this feeling of okay there's something wrong in this world right like we've seen a lot of very beautiful imagery in you know in, in this like alternate dimension like you know a couple of strange things here and there but i think from the time mahito gets there until uh lady Himi starts setting fire to the pelicans like most of the stuff we've seen is very beautiful very grand and generally like positively spun and then we have you know that uh you know, it gets a little bit negative and, you know, with Mahito like yelling over the edge at Lady Himi to stop uh, burning the Wada Wada. And, you know, and then it, I think it really sinks to this like, you know, local low point when Willem Dafoe's Pelican is there. But again, I think it it's really important to, you know, just kind of set that tone and, you know, give you like start to instill in you this idea that like there's something very wrong with this world and like, you know, there there's this seemingly evil element to it, but not because they like chose to be evil, right? Just like this this is all they can do. 
Um, it's like eat the water, Super water because there are no fish. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, again, we could we I can go on and on, but those are the ones that I'll shout out. Yeah, I mean, Robert Pattinson is definitely going all in, as we've said. I liked it. I think the character at times, I don't know, especially after he gets unmasked, if you will, was offering some comic relief that at times I felt was a little bit misplaced, perhaps, where I just wanted to sort of let a moment breathe. Uh, and he was kind of, you know, jumping in with a little bit of a punchline. Um, like what examples? But- Just out of curiosity. Well, I'm, I mean, and I'm sitting here, I'm struggling to remember, but um, I feel like towards the end when there, there's the scene with the, um, the, the tower master, the grand uncle, um, and he, well, he, he, he runs off to, to meet with, with uh, Lady Hemi to meet the, the tower master, to meet his grand uncle. And the heron kind of gets left behind. And I don't remember exactly what the joke is. Again, I've only seen the movie once, you know, several hours ago, but he like kind of makes a little wisecrack, like, Oh, wait for me. You forgot me or something. And just like goes running off. And I'm like, okay, we, I don't really, I'm not really concerned with you right now. You know, like (laughs) I want to know what's going to happen in this scene. Like, you know, this is a big moment that's coming up here where he's going to have to confront the tower master. He's going to have to make the choice, right. That is like the whole, that the whole movie's about. And I just felt like there were a little bit of times when he, he was just playing up this bumbling, you know, like sort of, Again, he, he starts off as like, oh, he's this menacing sort of heron. But then the second that he gets, um, you know, unmasked, it's like he's bumbling. He's afraid of his own shadow, sort of. He just, um, you know, is the exact opposite of what you, you expect him to be. And they maybe milked that just a little bit too much. But small complaints, small quibbles. Robert Pattinson, you know, gives it his all for sure. I really enjoyed all the other performances. I didn't recognize Florence Pugh's voice really in either one of her roles either so i think you certainly don't have the problem here of um recognizing actors rather than their characters i did recognize christian bale's voice but um you know i didn't feel that it took away from the experience or anything so um yeah great cast let's also talk about the technical elements of the movie um the movie looks phenomenal i think we can all agree on that i mean the opening sequence is breathtaking the fire um, and the escape is un- unbelievable and just, you know, everything that comes after it, too. I, I just thought, you know, there were certain images, the uh, the guts of the fish, when they cut open the fish and the the all the in- intestines and, you know, guts and everything, um, you know, come pouring out. I thought that image was just like crazy create creative and there are just other things that sat with me throughout the movie i think you know as with all of miyazaki's films it's stunning but this was the first one i've seen on the big screen i guess i i did see kiki's it's a little different with it being a movie that i hadn't seen before and i couldn't help but be sort of awestruck by the visuals and then of course joe hasaishi um he is he is back miyazaki miyazaki's longtime collaborator with a score and I know, I you know, again, I think one of a score that will go down for me as one of his best, probably. Um, I, I think more than a, in a lot of the films, I noticed, you know, the score throughout and the ways that it was sort of making me feel. I think it's evoking, you know, sort of certain feelings from the very beginning of the movie. Um, and 
there's a, a somberness about it that I think, it, you know, suits a lot of, um, you know, the feelings that Mahito has. So what did you guys think about the visuals, the, the sound, the music, you know, all the technical aspects of this movie, Jay? I think I touched a little bit on the visuals earlier on, but just to reiterate, like, like you said, there are some pretty breathtaking shots in this one. And again, I think that, you know, between the fire opening, um, I think, again, some of the ways that the other world is drawn, like we're seeing elements of Miyazaki that we haven't, or, you know, we're just seeing, you know, new drawings, right? I think there were some others that were very reminiscent of things you've seen before. I remember when the, you know, the other world starts to collapse after the parrot king, you know, stacks the blocks and then chops the table in half and the sun explodes and you just have these, you know, like this like brown goop, right? Just like, you know, flying like all over everyone. Like that felt very reminiscent of Princess Mononoke to me. Um, but again, at the same time with, you know, some things we've seen before and Scott, I think Scott Shelton, I think you've alluded uh, offline to like a, you know, a super cut of here's the shot from the previous movie, you know, a previous Miyazaki movie, and here's it recreated in Boy and the Heron. Like, you know, I'm sure that's there, but again, we do see a bunch of new things. And then you you said it, like Joe Hisaishi's score, again, I thought was very, you know, I almost want to say obvious in this one. Like, you know, I, you couldn't not notice it. There are some Miyazaki movies where I'm like, I don't really remember what the score was like. And I feel like, you know, if, you know, I would have felt that way like half an hour after walking out, but this one is not like that at all. I think it was, you know, just very, I don't want to say in your face, but just very prevalent. You know, I think uh, it really just enhanced the story, you know, and I especially think of that, you know, final scene when they're leaving the other world, like the score just absolutely swells. It was completely majestic. And there's also a lot of tension in the score at times too. Like, you know, oh, when, yeah. they're, when he's entering the tower for the first time, I was kind of like gripping the side of my seat a little bit, you know, like what is going going on here? You know, he's approaching. Joe, Joe his hits mother. the strings pretty hard with the violin yeah. and, and, or the cello or whatever he's using. But yeah, it worked for me. I was picking up what he was putting down for sure. Uh, Scott, your your thoughts on the technical aspects? Yeah. <laughs> when I saw this film for the first time at the New York Film Festival, I was sat on the third row. And neither of you have been in Alice Tully Hall. But that is a very large screen uh, to be sitting on the third row. And one of the reasons why I was telling people people that I've been recommending the movie to is that like, if you're going to go see this in the IMAX theater at Lincoln square, you really should just go see the dub because it's going to be very painful. I think to move your head up and down to go back and forth between the subtitles and what's viewing on the screen. Cause that was a little bit my experience when I was watching the film for the first time. But what I will say for signal in the third row of Alice Tully hall, when I saw this film was that it did really create a very sharp image uh, for me, I was very close. I got a, a full detail on the animation, I would say, in that experience. And that was sort of my initial impression of the film walking out, just sort of flabbergasted by how gorgeous the film looks. Not only are we talking about sort of different techniques of animating frames, I, I think that the call out earlier about the opening sequence where he's running through the crowds of Japan or of Tokyo, I should say, towards the hospital in flames i mean it's un unbelievable animation just absolutely absolutely unbelievable and i think that there's other moments throughout the film that feel 
somehow like even more painterly than some of his other movies. I think of so many of the of the scenes at the estate in the countryside in the first half of the film where you have this very serene, picturesque, almost like it, it almost felt like impressionistic backdrop uh, of the animation that was just jaw droppingly gorgeous. And when you enter the fantasy world, especially as you play around with the tower and things like that. And I think some of the stuff that Jay was talking about at the end of the movie is really brilliant animation as well. But just the sort of starry night, the sky of yes. when, when they're in the tower is sort of breathtaking. All the Warawara all these... Wara, like flying yeah. away and, you know, the image of all them, like the little cycle of life almost as they're sort of, you know, going to be yeah. born. And then, of course, the pigeons arriving to eat them. Yeah, I think pelicans, not pigeons, but yes. Um, P-bird, sorry. P-bird, okay. Yo, pigeons, come to New York. We'll talk about pigeons. <laughs> yeah, not pigeons. I yeah. But no, yeah, you're absolutely right. That that scene sticks out as well. I think the animation is gorgeous. And yeah, the Hasaishi score, I'm going to have to really ruminate on whether, like where this sits in the in the sort of Hasaishi ranking, but it's it does sit with you. I think that maybe they're some of the motifs like the motifs themselves almost evoke other Hasaishi scores sort of like everything in this film like it almost feels like it's evoking other elements but then of course it has its its own kernel of originality and, and newness to it I think we were talking about these you know highly tense and dramatic moments that it amps up there's so I think there's not that there aren't examples of that that you could potentially reference as well but it feels like in those specific moments that we are getting something unique and new to this film from his other works in Hayao Miyazaki movies. And as much as maybe the soft, gentle, sort of somber elements that you were referencing earlier, Scott might remind me of the wind rises or other motifs that might, might exist. Like there are elements that are that evoke and there are elements that feel, feel new. And I think that that is one of the hallmarks of this particular score it's up there for me. I definitely think about that sort of string motif that the really tenth string motif that we were referencing uh, multiple times now, often since watching this movie, it's very, it's, it really sticks out in my mind and we'll see where it eventually lands in, in sort of the, the scores that I go back to and think about the most, but it's remarkable. Another remarkable production design uh, from all quarters from, you know, whether it's the hand-drawn animation, whether it's the cinematography by Atsushi Yokui, um, and then Joe Hisaishi. Yeah. Yep. A marks on, on all fronts. But, um, you know, I think as we've alluded to, probably people who see this movie, the first question when they come out of the movie will be, what was that about? You know, what did it mean? Sort of what exactly, how exactly are we to make sense of particularly what happens towards the end of this film? And of course, just to sort of skip ahead, the uh, the movie sort of culminates with the scene that I've talked about where, where Mahito goes and meets the, his great grand great uncle or the great uncle of his mother, um, the tower master who is of course voiced by uh, Mark Hamill in the movie, but he's the one who um, sort of is the created this tower and sort of the pathway to these alternate worlds and has quite literally formed the building blocks for all of these universes um, for 
you know, the the majority of his life. And now he needs somebody of his bloodline to succeed him uh, in this this role. Uh, and he wants uh, Mahito to, <laughs> to take over and to uh, add his his block right to this this world or to, to build his own world, essentially. And, you know, build one that is full of nothing but beauty and love and peace and all of the good things in life and none of the bad things. Um, and so Mahito has that choice uh, or he can return to the real world and, you know, accept the pain, the suffering, including the death of his mother, right? Cause he, he ends up reconnecting with his mother sort of in this, this world too. But um, everything that, you know, is contained in the real world and, you know, what is his choice going to be? Ultimately, he chooses what some would say is the hard route uh, of going back to the real world. Um, and Miyazaki seems to to very much be validating here um, the idea that even though, you know, there was a lot of suffering, like quite literally he was born into suffering, as we've alluded to, by being born into, you know, the middle of World War II. As he reflects on the end of his life, um, there's there's a part of him that would choose to do it again and also as he's sort of leaving a message to his you know grandson if you will um that that you know it is it is worth it right like sort of the the struggles and the suffering and everything that you will face in life uh you know it it is worth it to go through all this the, the, that question going back to that central question of how do you live right which is the title of the book that um, his mother leaves for him and the title of the novel, the real novel that Miyazaki was given by his mother. Um, what do you, what do you guys make of the ending of this movie? You know, I'm sort of just scratching the surface there with, with what I'm saying, but, um, you know, if, if people are saying sort of the, the very general broad question of what is this movie about? What does it mean? How do you think you can go about answering that? Um, Scott, you've seen it the most times. I think you're probably the best person, most qualified to answer the question. Yeah, I, I think that this film contains multitudes is, is yes. what I'll say. <laughs> you know, for part of it really feels like it is this, I guess the most surface read is something like if you're, if you're just talking about the first level of what's going on, the granduncle is looking for someone to take his place in maintaining these worlds that he has created or has discovered and maintained. And the granduncle, whether it's out of arrogance or ego or whatever it might be, you know, really connects this notion of like, it needs to be my bloodline and the person needs to be free of malice, I think is the word that they use in the English dub. And there's some element where I think you have to believe that the granduncle believes he's free of, he was or is free of malice. Um, maybe less so these days now in the present than he was earlier in his life, but that that's a critical part. And I think all of the pain and suffering and the self in, you know, self-inflicted injury, which is ultimately what Mahito cites as he responds to the granduncle's question that he doesn't feel like, a, this is this is the life that he wants to lead. And B, he doesn't really feel like he can fit the box in which he would be put into 
by choosing to accept that role. He doesn't believe that he's free of malice. When you go a layer deeper, what I think you think at the more meta level, right, is the people who come after us, who we leave things for this just sort of by, you know, intentionally or otherwise, the act of leaving them, this thing puts them in a box where they must fit certain requirements in order to do them. And notionally, that can be deeply unsatisfying. And to answer the question, which I think is absolutely core to the film from start to finish of how do you live? It's not necessarily how you're going to find that you live. It's not going to be you creating like Jiro Horikoshi, right? Like if Jiro did what his father and mother left him to do before him, he wouldn't be building airplanes. And so there's this sort of metatextual narrative where that I sort of start to dig into when I think about this with the wind rises that like if, if the wind rises is this sort of grand assertion of Miyazaki that it's so that you have to find what you're passionate about and create and create no matter how that creation is used, because that is what is going to fulfill you. And that's what's going to give you life and, and why you get up every day to live. It feels like the boy and the heron is a response and sort of coming over the top of that and saying for those as we sort of find the paths in life of how of to answer the question of what's going to make us want to, to be, or like what's going to fulfill us, how, are, how we are going to live. We, it doesn't mean we can't do the paths that are set in front of us by our relatives and those who come before us. We absolutely can. But if you don't feel like you fit into that role, then that's you okay. For, then you forge your own path and that is okay. Yeah. And I find the character of the grand uncle who, I was like pretty convinced on the second watch is, is also a stand in for me is like Miyazaki. Obviously he's writing some semi-autobiographical uh, perspectives into Maito as a character, but it also felt like to one of the, the things you were saying earlier, Scott, it really feels like him wrestling with what he has left for his children and his grandchildren. Absolutely. And then I read this article where he talks about that. The grand uncles like apparently Isao Takahata. Isao Takahata yeah. yeah. And I was just like, okay, I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about that really. I mean, Takahata, who is another co-founder of studio Ghibli with Hayao Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki, who's the producer on so many, if not all of studio Ghibli's movies, they're sort of like the three creators of the studio and was a mentor to Miyazaki died in the production of this movie, which made yeah. it very difficult. I think for Miyazaki, there was a, there was a, my understanding is that there there was like an original or an in-production version of this movie that much more strongly featured the grand uncle as a character, maybe even arguably yeah. a main character in, in the film. And instead, uh, after Takahata passed in 2018, the character like Miyazaki just found it so difficult to include the character in the film and eventually was able to work in to the version that we have now. And, and it obviously plays a very critical role, but I... I I'm not flummoxed by that, but I can't help but feel like there is multi like this is where the multitudes part comes in, right? Where I can't help but feel that obviously that relationship that he had with Takahata is critical and certainly there. And I'm sure between Maito and the granduncle, there is there is a there is certainly like a truth and and an experience that Miyazaki is like pulling from to describe that relationship. But also at the meta level, I can't help but feel like it's not also Miyazaki at the same time and how and what his relationships are, are, are like generationally for all the reasons that I think you were saying earlier. And, you know, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not even sure that it matters that much because, you know, Miyazaki's not making this film for us to like, you know, rip apart and 
and think about like he made it for himself and he made it for the you know the people close to him and and that's neither here or there and i think he's probably fine with us interpreting it however we want to but it, it's sort of hard not to not to think and not to imagine that it's sort of this grand assertion like just sort of to close the loop on what i was saying earlier that the most important thing you can do is is forge your own path and if that path is familiar to the people that you are close with great if it's something new that's great too and yeah like I, I don't know like that i just find that sort of central conceit just so important and so moving and such an an important response to a sort of addendum to not even responsible like almost an addendum to the wind rises of like this is what it can be like if you find how you live like that is what you can be you can be jiro you can be someone who's so deeply moved and fulfilled by the work that they're doing but you know you and i we aren't necessarily jiro horikoshi right like we're not necessarily making planes and being fulfilled by that in that way and so i think that that sort of the end of the film becomes so magnanimous in that respect and maito's choice to abandon the worlds that his grand great great uncle i don't even i don't understand the yeah i mean i think that the grand uncle the yeah. grand uncle has sort of created as this again this melancholic reality that we all have to live with it's it's almost like the grief that has been that has seeped into this world and certainly Maito's life it it continues right it's there's a sadness to that choice but at the same time it's fulfilling and i find that to be like a really remarkable conclusion of the film and certainly the point in the film where I'm like, this, this works, like this is starting to work. And for me, like this is starting to really work and I get it and I'm starting to understand. And I'm not saying I, I, I felt that in the film when I was watching it, but it, afterwards when I'm thinking back on it, I was like, that is the point where the, the sort of film really pivots and, and turns on. And I just found that so, so moving and remarkable. And the end of the film is, is wonderful. It's up there and it's some of the, the best stuff that I think, Miyazaki has put to screen but I also think it's like not free of complications and and complexity and and nuance there's there's this element too that I can't help but feel that Miyazaki is writing regret into his own life as well like if you take the read of Miyazaki having some you know spirituality within the grand uncle you can't help but feel like he he regrets trying to force his son Goro or maybe his family and other people who are close to him into living this life that he wanted to live that was fulfilling for him but maybe not for others and i i could be wrong but there's these little moments in that conversation where the granduncle accepts the decision right that maito has made but it's like will you just stack it one more time it's like to have the three extra days go by and that sort of like acceptance but this way of trying to wedge in you wedge your ideas and your world back into the conversation again. It, it just sort of feels full of of what must be regret and and misstep almost is how I can't help but read it. And again, maybe I'm reading more onto the text than the author the author meant, but I can't help but feel feel that with also just sort of everything that we know outside of the films about his relationship with Goro, who's a producer on this film. Um, his son who, you know, I think this film is all about making sure that he knows he doesn't have to do this if he doesn't want to. And maybe Goro does want to do this, right? That's not, it's not to say that he doesn't, but it's one of these sort of fascinating elements of the film. And like I say, 
every single time a film like this comes up, I found it, I find it so, you know, intimate when a creator is like lays bare his soul onto, onto something like you see a part of him that, or her that isn't necessarily there on the, that isn't there on the surface and that you wouldn't necessarily be mining otherwise. And the fact that there is some real uh, tough honesty, I think about maybe the way that Miyazaki has lived his life in this as well as, is again, it sort of, it almost makes me feel closer to him as a creator and, and feel a deeper empathy for what these creations have cost him. And it works, you know, this, the end of this film really works. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't help, but have the same feeling as you got about the, the grand uncle also being, um, you know, Miyazaki himself reflecting on his, you know, regrets, especially with his relationship to his family. And I, and I think, you know, going just like one small step further what, beyond what you said of, you know, as you're foraging your own path, whatever that may be, don't forget your family, right? Because that's kind of, you know, what is what is driving Mahito throughout this movie is I have to, well, it, in, in two ways, I have to save Natsuko, right? Who has become this sort of, you know, de facto mother for him since his mother's passed away. And also um, I have to find out the truth about my mother, right? Because the heron is telling him, oh, your mother's still alive. And he's like, I know that it is a lie. However, I have to find out for myself, right? Like that is sort of the the tension of, of you know, the the what is driving him forward. And, you know, he he is making sure at the end, it is not just I want to go back to the real world. It is I want to go back to the real world with Natsuko, my mother. Right. Like that is literally a, the line that he says, I believe. And, you know, he also just sort of assembles this family along the way. Right. With the the heron and even uh, the the parakeets right sort of at, they transform into you know the parakeets that we know animals um as he he comes back into the real world and and the uh the old woman as well florence pew's character kiriko. i can't recall yeah kiriko um and so you know i think that is intimately tied to everything that he's saying too and, and again it's it's all steeped in that regret he has about sort of losing sight perhaps of the role that um, his family has in his life um, and, and throwing himself rather into building these blocks right into creating this world and even though as you say Scott the the grand uncle feels perhaps that he doesn't have malice he also says you know like that he hasn't done as good of a job as he would have hoped with create you know maintaining balance basically between these worlds because obviously there's a lot of you know chaos going down uh, that we see over the course of this movie, whether it's the pelicans eating the war, whether it's the whether it's the uh, parakeet king and everything that he's up to, um, you know, it's it's not the the peaceful world, perhaps that he would have hoped. And I, you know, again, I think that all comes back to Miyazaki having a complicated relationship with his own work, his own creation, especially as it relates to how that affected his relationship with his family. Um, Jay, 
your your thoughts add add to the conversation if uh, if you have anything um, that's sticking out to you. I mean, I'm I'm not sure how to honestly. I I think you've covered it really well, Scott Shelton. I love the the read you're adding to the movie. You know, with uh, the context of Miyazaki and you know his life, his son. You know, who you said, who you said is the producer on the film. Like, I you know, it again. This, this feels like another case of. I think I was saying this after the wind while we were talking about the wind rises, where you guys are you know layering in this extra context that it's context and it's just like breaking my heart even just like a little bit more than the movie already did um and i I think that's something really beautiful i i mean i think i'll also just add you know maybe this was a a weird way to read it but i almost got like vibes of inception vibes of of inception um when he's at the end basically deciding whether or not he should stay in this other world and maybe he can build a better world Um, and this idea of like will you do this or will you go back to you know, the world that you came from, you know, with, you know, great uncle saying, you know, it was like murderers and thieves and all that. And, you know, him, him not only accepting his world for what it is and, you know, going back with that family that he's, you know, found along the way. But I think there's also an element of, I don't want to say he was like necessarily selfish to start this, right? I think he was in a very difficult position, but I think he had this extra element of, you know, learning to live for someone else that someone else being his new mother right like you know accepting yeah. her i think in, that's such a huge part of the film yeah of course and you know and just i think that it it's demonstrative like I, I see that and i'm like you know he we, we see him do this and you know it makes me wonder like you know how do you live and i think to some extent the answer could and probably should be you know to some extent for others as well you know for my chosen family Oh. And his, I mean, that that's like, it seems like that's his mother's influence to some extent too, right? Because, you know, she is also saying, I'm going to go into the real world, even though I know that, you know, I'm going to die in this fire, right? I'm going to die in this fire eventually. It is, I'm going to do it because I'm going to give birth to you and you're a good boy, she says. Sure. I mean, he's, you know, he's, I think he's made up he's he's already had this growth until then but it's nice to i guess see that through line of you know she clearly had this quality to her and over the mm-hmm. course of the movie you know we see him you know, grow into having that quality as well yeah i mean that 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 sort of growth you see you witness happen in the delivery room i forget what whatever they call the room that natsuko is in in the in the castle they say the they, delivery room the yeah. delivery room is what they call it yeah because that's what because he first appeals to her and says that you know we have to go home and she rejects him right there's this like really this really grim scene about that and then he i think he realizes something this is the part i think where i wonder if upon further revisits with more time separating them as i as i sort of wash my brain of being so drilled and locked into the end of the film which has really captivated a lot of my share of mind as i've thought about this movie but i think really the element there where he the uh, the switch flips right he calls her mother there for the first time and that is what sort of wakes her up from her stupor in in this delivery room before she is sort of restrained by the i think you have to say she's restrained by the granduncle the power that the granduncle sort of oversees and these rocks that are 
may or may not be free of malice or whatever the word is, right? And I think there's a there's a an element of unknown involved with that. But that scene se- feels like a super critical one where Lady Hemi pleads for basically pleads to allow them to leave, but is rejected at least temporarily before the the rocks sort of re- like you know knock them unconscious with whatever magic is is within them and th- yeah the the moment where he calls her mother for the thir- for the first time like you you realize how much growth this character has really experienced and obviously like a huge portion of that comes when he is with Kiriko when he is witnessing what what is happening to the Wada Wada sorry the Wara Wara the Wada Wada that's funny the Wara Wara and I think that sort of experience and that understanding and appreciation for I don't know if the cycle of life is is quite the right way to describe it but this but that conversation with Willem like the great pelican and yeah the realization that this the world isn't perfect this world just like his own world is full of conflict and loss and grief and though maybe there is not world war II happening in the in this fantasy world there is a cycle and a creation that has left creatures and 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 beings in conflict with each other and the only he doesn't know how to fix that right but i think that and his conversations with kiriko and then being saved by lady himi give him an appreciation that he would never make it through this world right on his own and that holds true and i think the connections that he starts to make between the sea world this fantasy world and the real world that he came from is critical to him eventually embracing this notion that exactly what Jay was saying, which I think is this is the arc. This is his arc, right? This notion that he has to go back and live for other people. The great, the grand uncle, who has he lived for? Not that it's a bad thing, but like he created these worlds, but who are they for? Right. He we don't know the answer to that question. in a tower and like, you know, literally wasn't interacting with anyone. And he, they may have been for someone. We don't know. Right. We don't really know exactly what happened to the grand uncle when he disappeared for now decades and decades. But we know that. There's no one here that. He would be living for. There's no one here that Maito would be living for. All of those people are going back into in the, the real world. world. And. Yes, his biological mother might be gone, but he has Natsuko. He has Shoichi, his father. He has, you know, if the Heron's going to... I mean, the Heron's a different complicated story that we haven't really talked about at all. But, um, you know, there are these other these other people to live for. And, I mean, that is that's that is the core of his arc, right? Like, if, they, if you don't believe that, and if that doesn't work, and if that doesn't develop in that way, then Maito as a character is kind of a bust. I don't know. You say uh, World War II isn't going on in the uh, the fantasy world, but I think uh, Dave Bautista, the Parakeet King, I think he's about ready to start World War II sure. by the end of this movie. He's certainly uh, trying to take the power. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, look, there is so much more we can talk about. I think you're right, Scott, that we maybe didn't even get into the Heron too much and the significance of that character. But... Um, Who's supposed you know, to be, if you if you believe Toshio Suzuki, is supposed to be Toshio yeah. Suzuki. So, which I think is fascinating. Maybe what does that say about their relationship? Yeah, I don't what know. What does that say about their relationship over decades? So fascinating to me. I was sort of like 
I, I sort of I sort of jokingly made that when I was texting with someone about this movie, I sort of jokingly made the assertion of like who is Toshio Suzuki in this movie if there's all these other like family members and stuff and and this person's running, it's like, you know, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be that deep. And I mean, apparently it does have to be that deep, I think. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, something else to mull over and, and obviously to, to sort of gain insight about on repeat viewings, I think, because I didn't know any of that going in. But, you know, upon leaving the film, I also discovered, you know, the, the quotes that you're referencing, Scott, about the grand uncle being Isao Takahata and, Suzuki himself being uh, the the heron, so I would love to view it again with that lens. Yeah, I, I would love. I mean, honestly, I have so many questions about the character of the heron, and, and because we haven't talked about the heron, they haven't really come up very much. But what is the motivation of the heron in this movie? Like, why is he? I mean, like, yes, your presence is requested, right? Like, you're, you know, it, that that's like the whole line that he's quoting to get him to come to the castle and he's baiting him with this knowledge that his mother is still alive, but we don't know, like, is the Pelican a creature from a different world? But he comes back to this world at the end. Like I have so many questions about that character. That's one of the, I don't think that's like a great, I don't know if that's like a great mystery or if there's, if there's just, a, I need more time to really sit and think specifically about that character and his motivations and trying to understand exactly what that character wants and is trying to accomplish because I haven't put a lot of thought into that yet. But I do wonder about that because it seems like, right, the granduncle is familiar with the heron, that he instructs the heron to be his guide in the world. But it's not clear, really, if the heron is of that world or not. And he exits with them back into, you know, 1943 Japan and has this whole conversation at the end of the movie with him, right, where eventually you will forget forget about yeah. this place which yeah i know that's one part of the film that i don't quite know fully what to make of it yet i don't either but i want to i want to raise a question on that he didn't forget right because i did a very quick scan of like you know what did people think of this and no one seemed to mention that at the end of the movie you know as he's packing up his things you see him reach into his pocket you know look at something and then put it back into his pocket and like it could have been anything but in my mind it was the the block the figurine the one block yeah. yeah well the figurine turned back into kirigo right yeah yeah yeah. he should still right, have the yes. one block he has, he had he one block he has like he, one he kept the one block yeah 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 it's his totem i mean he also <laughs> has the book right he has the book he still has the book too how do you live how do you live yeah well that but wasn't from the other world the right? block was... is from the other worlds right yeah yeah no that... i understand but i'm saying like surely reading the book would remind him about the experience right i mean maybe not I don't know. maybe i'm reading too much into that it's element, ambiguous but... Look, did your mom, did your dead mom write you a, a book set six years before um, telling you about her life? Interesting. And even, you know, to, to piggyback on what you're saying, Scott, I think even like the physical form of the heron, again, sort of flashing between this heron, like talking bird, right? And the human being that is like hidden inside of the heron. Is he I a human? That... I don't, I don't think it's clear that he's human. Okay, but he has a human appearance, right? I think sure. that is portraying maybe the conflict you're talking about, right? That he's he's torn between these two worlds. Maybe he, he we don't know sort of what his home is, if you will, um, because he feels sort of uh, responsibility to to both both sides. 
Yeah. I mean, he also has magic, right? Like he's able to right. perform yeah. magic in the real world. I mean, how is he? Yeah. He's flying, like, you know, even though it, at times it looks like it's just a guy in a suit, right? Uh, so it's uh, it's it, it, everything about the way that that character is constructed, I think, leads to a lot of questions and questions that probably can only be answered with repeat viewings. So, uh, the, you know, I mentioned it earlier, so I should come back to it. The the edit. There, there was one moment. I, it was really only one moment. There might have been others, too, but... The one that I recall is where he first encounters the grand uncle, right? He he sort of wakes up on the floor, right? And he encounters the grand uncle for the first time. They have this conversation. And then he shows him the building blocks, right? And he 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 touches them and he says, Oh, you know, there, there's malice in these or whatever, right? And the grand uncle says to him, like, oh. Um, this is why I want you to be my successor, right? Because you're you, you're wise and all of these things. And it feels like like you're in the middle of the conversation and then it just cuts and he's like, and Mahito is like hanging up on the wall like he's, you know, captured and whatnot by the parakeets. And the, and the parakeet is like sharpening his knife, getting ready to eat him. And it was just like, it caught me off guard for a second because I was like, wait a minute, this whole sequence that we just saw, was that a dream? Like what was going on here? Like, you know, because it, it literally just like, in, it feels like in the middle of the conversation, it just breaks and now he's hanging up, he's been captured. But that's really the only moment like that that sticks out. But, um, you know, it, it was one thing, if I have to nitpick, that like caught me off guard a little bit. I don't know if that, that even registered with you guys, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I sort of treat it as like a, a dream. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think I had the same reaction. Okay. But I don't know if that's the answer. I, yeah. Yeah, neither do I. Yeah. It is an answer, and so we will just, we will accept it. And uh, Things are strange in this fantasy world. They are. Uh, that's what the, the one old old lady keeps keeps talking about, too. There, there are strange things that go on around here. Um, all right, guys. Well, I think we can move into the wrap-up phase for this movie Favorite scene or moment from the boy in the hair and Jay? I think it has to be everyone goes back to their world, right? You know, as as the worlds are collapsing, you have this very emotional farewell between Mahito and, you know, Lady Himi, who will you know, eventually become his mom. Um, again, the score is swelling, you know, they as they're running away and the world starts to fall apart, and you see, you know, the blocks, like the, the world crumbles into blocks, right? Like, the ones that like of the same form that you saw being stacked and being replaced by what just looks like the night sky. Um, you know, I think visually, emotionally, and uh, musically, just absolutely captivating. Well, well done. Scott. Yeah. I mean, it has to be the last scenes of the movie just for the, like the emotional crescendos that I was talking about earlier. I mean, I probably talked about like 20 minutes, just complete nonsense about that scene. So I, I think it kind of has to be that, but I, do find the opening sequence of the movie extremely powerful and evocative and how quickly it, it, it sort of just leans into the animation that is very breathtaking and, and sort of these almost like ghost-like surreal shadows through the streets where it almost feel, sort of feels like it's a memory already, right? It's like sort of a, a memory that's sort of just emblazoned upon, you know, his mind. And... And then it cuts to 
the Hasaishi motif and the score, Boy and the Heron title card. Like I found that opening sequence very a very strong tone setter, right? And that's important because this tone is going to be different than a lot of the other Miyazaki movies, if not all the other Miyazaki movies that we've watched. So that opening scene is really successful at setting the tone in a way that, frankly, I think was extremely necessary to achieve what the film's ambitions were. Yeah, and another scene that I enjoyed in addition to the ones that you guys have have mentioned uh, was that scene we talked about with the Waru Waru when they are flying off to, you know, be born, right? To become um, become lives. And it's there's sort of this this beautiful moment and Kiriko is there. I forget the line she says. She says something about like, I'm just so thankful that you got to see this or something like that. So thankful um, that I get that I get that we gave them a good meal. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and then like immediately that moment is followed by the they became a the they Pelicans. became a good meal for the Pelicans. yeah they became a good meal for someone yeah. um and just the you know again the the tension and the contrast between the beauty of the worry worry you know going to be born and just sort of the majesty of that and then the suffering that you know comes in the drop of a hat when the pelicans start picking them off um i mean that that a, itself a is an incredible scene. I mean, I'm glad you brought the scene up again, because that itself, right, if you want to talk about the sort of really deeply sad implications of of that of those scenes, A, the fact that Kiriko is saying <laughs> she hasn't seen this happen in a while. Yeah. And this is all said in the context of World War II, where you have all these people, all these Japanese people dying during the war. These people, you know, these war wars are being sent up to be born, but then they're being denied birth. Um, I think it's a really, it, again, it, it's not one of the core central themes of the film or not as explicitly a core central theme of the film as some of his other works, but this notion of the impact and, and sort of the devastation of war, I think is still being felt in, in different pockets throughout the film. I mean, obviously the devastation of the war itself, like the fact that his mother died, um, as presumably as a result of, uh, yes, it's a fire, but also in the middle of the war, right? There's this, this tragedy yeah. that's happening. So you know, I, I found that scene to be really effective too. All right, let's put a score on it. Jay, uh, out of 10, The Boy and the Heron. Going to be really, really interesting to revisit this one, but again, heaping plenty of praise on it. Right now, it's a 9.0. Scott? Yeah, I feel like I have outstanding questions about the film. I mean, I talked about them. I feel like the Heron is a big one, but I sort of just go with my gut and my gut says that the denouement of this film is just as powerful as some of his best work. And it ties so many of those emotional beats together. It feels something that's genuinely different than a lot of the other things that he's done. And for that, it feels like another 10, another Miyazaki 10 for me. Wow. I mean, I love that for you. Um, yeah. Wow. I'm right there with, I'm right there with Jay on this one. I, you know, I feel like I need the repeat viewing just to sort of address all of my questions and, you know, just just see what directions it takes me in on another watch with more context. Um, but it's a brilliant film. It's one of the best films of the year, and it could end up ranking very highly on my Ghibli list when all is said and done. I also give it a 9.0. Uh, 
So that will do it for our review of The Boy and the Heron. Jay, thank you so much for joining us on the episode. And thank you so much for joining us for the Countdown series. As always, it was a blast. Everyone go check out the Miyazaki episodes. And the Countdown will be back. But right now we are going to take a break uh, for this episode of Sunlight at Scott. When we come back, Scott and I will be going over a little bit of news, specifically the LA Film Critics Society announcing the results of their annual awards for 2023 in film. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we are in award season. We have spent the last couple of episodes, this news section, talking about the various uh, awards results that are slowly trickling out. And today we have the L.A. Film Critics Association, which actually just today, um, when we're recording this, named the results of their annual awards. Um, Of course, we always mention this, not necessarily the best predictor for the Oscars and the big awards to come certainly um, not certainly not one of the bigger predictors of the oscars yes uh (laughs) because the film critics just in general la and elsewhere oftentimes want to honor things that they feel are not going to be honored at the academy awards Um, well they're also just simply they're they're not voting in the oscars right so well yes they don't but they don't vote for the oscars right but um you know again in in general as well um i think a lot of critics, it seems, go in with the mindset of, oh, hey, these things aren't going to be talked about in award season, probably. So let's let's, you know, give them their due here. And I think that's certainly true um, in the case of the L.A. Film Critics Association and the fact that they named the zone of interest uh, as their best picture for the year. This is Jonathan Glazer's film, of course, um, that actually isn't even coming out until February, I think now isn't releasing wide if you will um uh, until february from what i i saw the other day but jonathan glazer's film for a24 about family living you know right outside of, of a major concentration camp scott i know you saw that Auschwitz, to be to be clear of Aus- of Auschwitz. okay i wasn't sure i didn't want to say that specifically whether it was Auschwitz, but um yeah scott i know you saw that film at the new york film festival it has gotten a lot of acclaim but uh, i don't think Honestly, I don't even think it's going to be nominated probably for Best Picture at the Oscars. So you feel like that's uh, probably the the critics here throwing the movie a bone. Jonathan Glazer also won for Best Director. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a runner-up in these categories. And um, runner-up for Best Picture is, you know, Oppenheimer, which is the film that is the favorite for the Oscar at this point. Is The Zone of Interest really not coming out until February? Are you sure about that? I think I saw that the other day because I, I was curious about it. You know, obviously we're getting towards the end of the year and making our list. And it's a film that I want to make time for before um, I make my list. Yes. According to IMDb, it says for me, it releases February 2nd of 2024. So wow. um, late push. Yeah. 
that's unfortunate because we'll probably do our lists before then. But uh, there's always one or two films like that, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, Zone of Interest winning there uh, and Jonathan Glazer winning for Best Director over Yorgos Lanthimos. Again, somebody that you'd expect to be in the Oscar race. So the critics still giving them the nod there. Um, moving down the list, Scott, leading performances. Uh, this is, you know, they do a unique thing here. of They're going to honor two performances, but it's not based on gender. Um, it could be two uh, performances, you know, of the same gender and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the opposite. But in this case, they've honored two actresses, uh, Sandra Hilaire for both of her films, Anatomy of a Fall, right? Uh, well, they, they do that. Yeah. when They just list every film that an actor's been in that year. They, they always do that. I think I've seen right. that before. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, Sandra Hilaire winning for both of her performances uh, in Anatomy of a Fall which we reviewed a few weeks ago and the zone of interest again, which we just mentioned. Although from what I understand, she has more of a supporting role in that movie. Would you say Scott, I think she seems to be getting campaigned, I think in supporting categories from what I've seen for zone of interest. I think that's only because she's getting campaigned for and lead for anatomy of a fall. Yeah. It's like, yes, she is a supporting role in that there's one lead role in the film and really only one lead role, but she's certainly a main character in the movie for sure. Right. But, of course, we're big fans of her, her performance in Anatomy of the Fall, so I'm excited to see that. And then Emma Stone in Poor Things. Again, probably going to be an Oscar nomination right there for Emma Stone. Uh, so the the critics kind of, you know, dipping their toe in the water uh, on both sides. But um, runner-ups for this category being Andrew Scott in All of Us Strangers, a movie and performance that I think is kind of just circling around maybe the edge of the Oscar race at the moment um you know just kind of trying to just sort of tread water from from what i see and then uh, a movie that is doing a little bit better i would say in the the oscar voting right now is uh is american fiction and jeffrey wright um getting nominated there or getting the runner-up um sharing that with with andrew scott there according to the la film critics what's the point of a runner-up when you when you give the award to two people i don't understand yeah, I don't get that either. But uh, you know, they're just trying to spread the wealth as. Why don't you just possible. do a top? Why don't you just do a top five list? At that point, what are you? What are we doing here? Yeah, uh, you know, don't don't take it up with me. Take it up with. Well, I'm taking it up with you. I'm blaming you. I actually. don't know, Katie Walsh. I'm just Katie trying to Walsh. think of LA film LA film critics here off the top of my head. Uh, Alonzo Duralde, maybe. Sure. Uh, supporting performances, Scott. Again, they're honoring two here, just as they did in the lead uh, category. And I have to say, they they killed it uh, because they they picked two of my favorite performances of the year, two of my favorite supporting performances: uh, Rachel McAdams in Are You There, God It's Me, Margaret, and Divine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers. Um, Divine Joy Randolph definitely one who it seems is going to be at the forefront of the Oscar race for her performance in this movie. I'm not really sure what the temperature is on Rachel McAdams and Are You There, God is Me, Margaret. I have seen a little bit of chatter about her recently, but that movie came out so early in the year, Scott, and you know it doesn't feel like it necessarily stayed in the consciousness of people. You know, now that we're here in December, um, although it does show up on you know a fair amount of year-end lists that I've seen, but um, I I hope that she finds a way to to get in there because. She is somebody that, uh, you know, again, we talked about on the episode, but I've been a big fan of her for a long time. And she's only got the one Oscar nomination today for Spotlight. So 
Um, I think she's very deserving for, for this performance. And then, Scott, th this is one that feels crazy to me, and the runners-up, uh, Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, who is, I mean, I think is a lead, right? I mean, she's going to be campaigned as a lead for the Oscars, certainly, in this category. Um, but the film critics felt, I guess, that Leonardo DiCaprio is the lead of the movie, and, and therefore Lily Gladstone could not be the lead. I don't know what the thinking is here, but Lily Gladstone uh, getting a runner-up along with Ryan Gosling and Barbie, uh, you know, two performances that could not be uh, on further ends of the spectrum, perhaps, but um, two great performances for sure. Moving on, best screenplay, Scott, May, December has been the one that sort of has cleaned up a lot of these that we've talked about, but it was the runner up here, All of Us Strangers winning uh, for best screenplay. So an interesting note there for, for Andrew Haig taking that one. Um, not a whole lot else to talk about going down the line, Scott. Anatomy of a Fall did win for best foreign language film. It does seem to be one of the front runners um, for that category, except not because, again, France submitted The Taste of Things. Uh, so that will be uh, the movie from France. I keep keep forgetting that France just. When I, the I Oscar nominations come out, Scott, you're going to be like, it's incredible. Anatomy of a Fall was snubbed. Snubbed. How could yeah. this have happened? <laughs> well, it's like what everyone did when. Um, Oh, what film was it? Uh, RRR, right, was not eligible for international film, I believe, because I think India submitted something else, if I'm remembering correctly. it was There was some film, I think, last year that people were, like, outraged about, and it was like, no, guys, actually, this wasn't even able to be nominated in the category. I'm pretty sure it was RRR. But, um, but yeah, Anatomy of a Fall. For that the did happen with RRR. Sorry, that did happen yeah. with RRR last year, too, just, right. just to confirm so. with you. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, some of the other specialty film categories, Scott, uh, the documentary Menus, which I know you just saw, the Fred Wiseman film, yeah. um, uh, that one for best documentary uh, film and uh, best animated film was, of course, The Boy and the Heron, which we just talked about. Um, so there you go. Um, the L.A. Film Critics uh, Society Awards. Um, coming up, Scott, we have the Golden Globes are revealing the nominees tomorrow. So um, like we'll, eight hours. we'll find out that for yeah. whatever intrigue that still holds. And uh, the Indie Spirit Award nominations did come out as well. Perhaps we'll talk about those on the next episode. But um, one of my favorite ones to track because you see a lot of stuff getting uh, awarded that you won't see popping up in anywhere else, really. So uh, perhaps we can visit that in our next episode. But I think sure. that should do it for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton 2013 And I'm at Scarby Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we'll be finding out how Willie became Wonka in our review of Paul King's Wonka. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.